previously on Slenderer. Stories crept out bit by bit. Drink and, and drugs had been found in Stuart Lubbock's blood. And Fleet Street, this was a bean feast, I'm afraid. Barrymore exercised his right not to answer questions about drugs at the inquest. Now remember, this is the guy, the star, that had always been open, friendly to everybody. Uh, how's things, Ernie? Very good. Yeah? Very, very good. You look very fit. Well, uh, not bad for my age. No, it's no, it's too much. I don't know. Clash. Pistols. Bloodshots. This is Michael Barrymore versus Pete Doherty, episode two, Body to Body. So sorry, I feel like I need to circle back a little bit. Um, so when you say body to body, what exactly do you mean? Michael Kieran Pocker, known by his stage name, Michael Barrymore, grew up in a high-rise Bermondsey council flat. He lived on the Dickens estate for the first 18 years of his life with his two elder siblings, Anne and John. His father was a compulsive gambler and alcoholic. One night, when Barrymore was 11, he was sleeping alongside his mother when his father came home in a heavily intoxicated state, carrying a double-barreled shotgun. He walked into the bedroom, aimed the gun first at Barrymore, then at his mother, before slowly walking down the stairs and out of their lives forever. His son later discovered that his father died in poverty, living his last years in a halfway house. It's like um, the creative act of... Um... like putting yourself into the audience so um it's like you can make um a really it, it can you can go body to body with lots of people uh in which case it would be say a a, a popular song that uh you know captures the zeitgeist and loads of people think it's about them like say um Design for Life by uh, Manic Street Preachers or Everything Must Go by uh, Manic Street Preachers or, um, or or you can have it on a smaller scale so like someone could go body to body with um, the residents you know but no one would really quite understand why and it means basically it's like you you kind of like uh jive with it like a teenager and you think that it's um you think that you're it uh covered it in um in in Calidus, you know like uh with with one with gary glitter in it and when i kind of talked about how you write a good song and you just like like you, it's all about the spine and uh, the heart and the guts and the mind that's what makes up bass guitar and um lyrics and, and if you get the perfect fusion you know like it's like biology you create something that's universally going to go body to body with as many people as possible 
you know, everyone likes it. So what it reminds me of is like, I had a chemistry teacher called Mr. Greaves, and he was very uh, gruff. And he kind of like get really annoyed, and when he got annoyed, he'd go like, Simpson, so was he sort of going body to body with like a pit bull? Michael Barrymore concluded his formal education at the age of 15 and subsequently engaged in a diverse array of occupations, encompassing roles as a butlin's redcoat, a salesperson in the toy department of Selfridges, and a professional hairdresser. Yeah, that's not really what it is, but I mean, it could be, I suppose. It's up for grabs. Uh, he might have come across a pit bull in the past doing something, you know, that resonated with him a lot. And then he just sort of picked up those characteristics. But could have easily just picked it up off his dad or something. But I don't know if that's so much body to body or not. Um, I think like body to body is more like you know, the action that the artist makes rather than um, the action that the person makes. So it's like, you know, you're creating a hit single and you're thinking, hey, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go body to body with this. Nevertheless, his burgeoning interest in stand-up comedy led him to embark upon this career path, culminating in noteworthy achievements within the entertainment industry via prominent talent competitions such as New Faces and Who Do You Do? In addition to his accomplishments in stand-up comedy, Barrymore's involvement in the entertainment realm expanded further as he assumed the role of a warm-up act for the studio audience of Are You Being Served? But then, like, what's the point in... Um creating something solely for that reason as well it's um it's quite an unusual thing to want to want to do subsequently he secured a regular position within russ abbott's madhouse during the early 1980s i guess the big point of doing it is is to make money you know to make a lot of money off someone but yeah what's interesting with um you know a lot of these like superstars um, as they've already been body to body with someone's gone body to body into them in the past, you know, they've got influences. So it's uh, the whole kind of Thomas De Quincey thing. You know, 200 years later, he's gone body to body into Pete Doherty. Michael Barrymore's roots in the music hall tradition played a significant role in shaping the aspirations and careers of young actors in the 1990s, including Christopher Eccleston and David Morrissey. The rich heritage of music hall, with its vibrant performances and vaudevillian charm, left an indelible mark on Barrymore and served as a source of inspiration for these emerging talents. Music hall, despite its popularity and influence, carried with it a distinct class structure that placed it in a position of scrutiny and condescension from the landed gentry during its heyday. This hierarchical divide reflected the social dynamics at the time and contributed to the perception that Music Hall was a form of entertainment of lesser prestige. Is it always conscious though? Like, is anyone else doing it? And not have they not realised that that's what they're doing? Furthermore, Barrymore's ventures beyond stand-up comedy, including his involvement as a warm-up act for shows like Are You Being Served, exemplified the broader reach and adaptability of the Music Hall tradition. Um, no, I think there is like um, a science to it, like some people know really, really well how to how to get it done. Uh, so there is like a definite science to going body to body. But I think some people are just natural, natural pipes. 
The genre of music hall had a profound influence on the iconic British band Blur. Blur's early albums, particularly Parklife and The Great Escape, prominently featured music hall influences. The band skillfully incorporated Johnny piano riffs, catchy choruses, and sing-along refrains into their songs, echoing the spirit of Music Hall's memorable tunes. Tracks like Parklife, Charmless Man, and Country House showcased their ability to channel the essence of Music Hall's upbeat and spirited character. The uh, Alex from Blur has maybe gone body to body with his haircut. Yeah, I think that's true. It's sort of taken over his existence, hasn't it? Like, he's still got it. Um, I saw him on the TV the other day, and uh, it doesn't look fake either. I think it's still, it's still there. It's still real. Uh, it was quite distracting because the other three just looked like three like unfortunate souls from the Little Mermaid versions of themselves. Whereas he, he did, but he, his hair looked great. Yeah, the the rest of Blur, well, all of Blur now. In the in the recent interview with him, when I looked at him, you know, they used to look like um, London art students, but now they look like uh, art technicians. Blur's lyrical content often evoked the storytelling aspect found in Music Hall. Just as music hall songs often depicted humorous and relatable narratives, Blur's lyrics captured vignettes of everyday life in a quintessentially British manner. Their songs reflected the cheeky wit and social commentary characteristic of music hall, addressing themes of class, urban life, and cultural identity with a mix of irony and sincerity. Whoops, sorry, yeah, they look like you'd be on an art course and um, you don't know how to make canvases uh, or how to put together a... Uh, an installation so you'd sort of like um you go and see terry around the back or damon and they'd uh they'd knock you up a couple of canvases whistling along as they made them yeah and if you asked them for anything complicated like um like a kind of revolving disc like a, a sort of duchamp spinning plate you know it sort of narrow their eyes a bit and then kind of go you know, you'd, you'd look at him, he'd be looking at you, and for a split second, you'd think you'd just asked him something really weird, but then they'd suddenly pull a pencil from behind the ear and just sort of, like, uh, sketch it all out for you and go, like, well, what you need for that is a motor mechanism around the back, you know, and they start telling you how you do it. But what would be really weird about that as well is... Um, Everything they're saying to you is exactly what you've just told them, but they need to say it as if they've thought of it themselves. I mean, that's body to body right there. Really, if you think about it on a smaller scale, like you walking into somewhere, telling someone something, and then them telling you it. This happens to me most of the time when I'm at work. It's almost like, uh, it's like what I was saying before about um, Damon Alban being body to body manifest. Like I've, I managed to manifest body to body, but it, like in the reverse way that he's doing it. So I'm reversing it where someone's body to body in me because I'll just keep saying stuff and then they will come out of it as if they've thought of it themselves about 20 minutes later. Whereas he is 
body to body manifest because he is constantly body to body in whatever he was like bogling to the night before. Cultural appropriation was rife in the late 90s as various aspects of marginalised cultures were often commodified and appropriated by the mainstream without proper understanding or respect. But then as well, I suppose what you're doing is body to body to an extent because you'd like be going to, you'd be going to him with um, like Duchamp in mind. So it's kind of just like, uh, like body to body is like, um, an echo. An echo. An echo. Of one idea to another, through another person, and it can keep going, I suppose, until eventually it just becomes um, like really thick as fuck. To me, it feels like um, a series of people trying to keep a squash ball in the air but the squash ball is actually a, a walnut Pete Doherty's widely documented battles with addiction have constituted a prominent facet of his personal life and exerted a profound influence on his trajectory as a musician yeah, I think um, that's about right. It, it, I had to listen to that twice because I wasn't sure. It, it's a lot to take in. Just because there's so much body into body and going on. Um, but I think maybe just to differentiate it, um, like true body to body is, in terms of songcraft, would be, you know, you verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, verse, chorus. Verse, chorus, maybe verse, like chorus, a bridge and that's chorus, why a lot of people chorus, like the six minute singles because they get longer they get more time to body to body with someone and it's kind of weird I think um, I don't think the technicians deliberately doing it necessarily like people normal people aren't necessarily doing it when they're just having conversations it happens but it's like the deliberate act of um body to body you know perpetrating it into like like you know doing it into a teenager like if i was like i'm gonna write a book now and i want it to appeal to like 14 year olds and like you know warp them really warp them but you know, they, I, I used to work in social work a lot, um, uh, like an admin in uh, Withenshaw uh, Children's Services and Family Placement and you know, departments like that. And there's a sort of, um, you know, everyone knows, you don't need to work in a place to know this, but um, a lot of abuse is cyclical so it's um verse chorus verse, you know like verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus verse chorus a load of like you know greasy hairy musician guys uh went body to body with damon Albert, and then he wants to go body to body with more kids you know like he got body to body as a kid probably quite badly and now he's like 
body and body and you know with other kids so it's kind of like um it's not an excuse but it's it's like maybe what all musicians are kind of craving to do without the security and stability of a traditional family structure michael barrymore had to confront the world with limited resources and support he was compelled to seek out opportunities to sustain himself whether through odd jobs or by relying on his resourcefulness to navigate the challenges he encountered these experiences shaped his character, fostering a sense of independence and self-sufficiency that would later manifest in his career and personal life. But you know, like, uh, Michael Barrymore is, like, um, he's, he's a showman, you know, like the guy at the circus, the guy with, uh, you know, his job was just being the circus guy, you know, with the, um, with the moustache and the big, the big, uh, the big top hat. Yeah, whipping lions. That's uh, he was just doing the ITV version of that. You know, he wasn't really trying to go. I don't think he was ever in, intending to connect with anyone, and I think that might have been his downfall. Um, uh, you know, like the downfall of just a guy on stage talking and like stumbling around. Is um, yeah, it's not about trying to trying to impress kids oh yeah I suppose yeah what I'm trying to say the simplest way of saying that is um, yeah Barrymore went body to body with no one so is there a term for that because I, I agree I think that's that's another difference between uh, Pete Doherty and Michael Barrymore, one that I hadn't actually anticipated, and yet it, it seems so. It seems like it's been there all along, like it was staring me in the face. That, you know, Pete Doherty was obviously bodied as badly as, or even worse perhaps, than Damon Alban as a child, and yet. Michael Barrymore. Nobody's ever been body to body with him. Um, would he be like uh, irradiant in a in a weird way? Power power pours out of him, and and uh, it sort of burns out. Like all power eventually burns out. He's not like a parasitic. He just sort of uh, burns. In 1948, the fearless writer Ruth Stiles Gannett embarked on an awe-inspiring journey that tested the limits of her physical and mental capacities. With a burning passion for storytelling and an unwavering commitment to her craft, she made the courageous decision to undertake a truly extraordinary creative endeavour, staying awake for an astonishing 15 days. This daunting challenge became the crucible in which the beautiful children's book, My Father's Dragon, was forged. The endeavour was not without its terrifying aspects. As the hours stretched into days, Gannett found herself venturing into uncharted territories of endurance and imagination. The absence of sleep, an essential pillar of human existence, became an ever-present reminder of the risks involved. The relentless demands on her mind and body brought forth moments of doubt, exhaustion, and perhaps even fear. Yet, undeterred by these trials, Gannett pressed on, determined to create something truly remarkable. Yeah, I don't, I don't really have an answer, you know, about the Barrymore thing. I'm really trying. 
because it is like um it's like a sort of unique thing um i mean you can become barrymore you know like uh if you if you stay awake enough if you stay awake all the time then you can become like barrymore Next week on Michael Barrymore vs. Pete Doherty, we speak to exalted northern raconteur and social mouthpiece Dave Haslam about his new book, I Was an A's Postman, and how he once delivered a letter to a Mr. N. Barrymore. And he thought to himself, oh, imagine this is Michael Barrymore. You have been listening to Slander Hour. Slander Hour is written and performed by Mark Simpson, Garth Simmons, and yours truly, Jim John Hoffness. This series has been produced for BBC Sounds by Stephen Slander Hour. Search for Slander Hour in your podcast app for more episodes exactly like this. <laughs>